I want to read the passage that we've been focusing on. Uh, today is the last day in this series, and uh, John chapter 17. It's such a, a, a rich and, and deep text, and Jesus prays this prayer for us. He, he prayed for the disciples first, and this the night before he went to the cross, and then he comes back and he prays this prayer for the future church. And it speaks so loudly. And if, if, he, if this is what he did the night before he went to the cross, it must be important for us. So let's read that again this morning. John chapter 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. I want to just back up and give you a couple summary points from the last couple of times that we've spent in this in this idea of oneness and what God is calling us to. And a couple of weeks ago, I, I said this is the main point, and I'll put that on the screen. The reality of becoming one in a church family assumes that we're offering our lives, our, our possessions, our pocketbooks back to God for the benefit of others. We really dug into Acts chapter 2 and looked at that early church a, a bit and I think that church, if you go to that passage, you'll see no greater demonstration in all of history as a church comes together to be one as a body of Christ. They surrendered their lives. They surrendered their possessions. They met together daily. They ate with each other in homes together. And the result was that God added to that church, it says, daily. And then last week, we look, looked at an obstacle to becoming one within the family of God. And I said it this way, we allow the fear of being exposed, exposure there, to avoid moving toward oneness within marriages, with friends, and especially within the church relationships. Genesis chapter 3 talks about fear coming into our lives, and as a result, the flesh wants to pull us away from people. And we fear people that would really know us deeply. And it can you understand this fear blocks our ability to even move toward other people. It pulls us away from relationship. It invites us to draw back and, and stay on the fringes of a church. To not get involved with people. To hide. To put up walls that protect ourselves. And even learn conversations at times that, that kind of wall people off and distance ourselves from other people's lives. I, I even think, as I was thinking through this week, lots of people can be humorous, they can be talkative, they can be sweet, but it doesn't mean that they're looking to become one with, with others within the church family. That fear of embarrassment and being known wants us to, to, to pulls us to, to says stay uninvolved in the body of Christ. But there was an antidote that we looked at last week, and it comes from 1 John 4.18. Perfect love casts out fear. And this week I came across a quote that I think kind of summarizes that, and, and look at what it says here. The perfect love of Christ 
provides me with what I need to face my fears. In Christ, I have a relationship that I cannot lose, a relationship sufficient to sustain me if all others fail. I have have unbreakable safety net beneath me as I venture across the tightrope of involving myself in other people's lives. See, I think there's this reality that we must embrace deep within our souls the sufficiency of Christ as we look to become one as a body and move toward that depth that Jesus wants us to move toward. But here's where we need to finish today and, and go just a bit farther. Really, almost, I think it's a little bit more practical in, in our understanding. So I want to give you the main point, and if you have a bulletin there, you can use that outline if you want to. But here's what I said for the main point for today, that God invites us to become intentional ministers of encouragement toward each other. And it has a purpose one with Christ, and one with each other. Intentional ministers. Now, I've got to throw a question at you. Do you believe, personally, do you believe that God wants you to become an intentional minister? Now, understand the word minister, clergy and, and tradition has hijacked that term. And it's kind of set it aside for those who are paid to lead a church or to preach a sermon. But catch this, everyone who claims to be a follower of Christ is called into ministry to be a minister. Now, let me show you a verse that we looked at briefly a few weeks back. And, and this is very a strong exhortation. It comes from Hebrews chapter 10 again, and I want to kind of use this today as the backdrop of finishing this series. Look how it reads. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together is in the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Folks, the pathway to deep and profound oneness is when people begin to see themselves as ministers toward each other. And it fulfills, frankly, these verses from Hebrews chapter 10. This text really is at the heart of becoming one and really practically what it looks like. We are to engage in each other's lives. We're to stir up love toward one another. We're to stimulate each other to do and to serve. We are to encourage each other as we look around and we encourage. And it says, until Jesus comes home. But let me give you a couple things that, in order for us to fulfill that, I don't have these on your notes here, but just, and we'll kind of jump back into them a little bit later, but, but some intentional things about encouragement and this idea of ministry, we become ministers. We need the right motive, but we need to be willing, and we need to be willing to develop the skills, develop the skills needed for increased effectiveness. And we're going to unpack that a little bit later on here this morning. So let me start a little bit wider and kind of dig in here. But this is what I've come to believe about how the church views ministry, especially when you talk about one with another. 
Um, and now recognize that all of us have, when I use the word we're going to minister to each other, all of us have some beliefs about how that should take place. Each of us, in one sense, has a method, a method of belief that should, how it's supposed to work. And that is influenced but in some ways, a little bit by our personality, but oftentimes how it was modeled to us, what we grew up in, and even our homes and our churches that we previously attended. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to walk through three pathways of how people need to or how people look at ministering to each other. So this is kind of the, the gist of it. The first two um, I got some issues with, and you'll see why I think a little bit later. But number one, if you're taking notes, I said this way. Some people, they choose this path to emphasize responsibility, and they give exhortation to put off, and, and this term you might know, but put off the old man and put on the new. But it's kind of based in the idea there of exhortation and an emphasis on discipline, overcoming the will. And, and I think this is how oftentimes people look at it. Some people, when they look at exhortations, you're supposed to do this. Some people who are conformists, who like to conform, they kind of go, tell me what to do. I'll do it. And for them, those kind of people, it, it actually is pretty easy. They, they kind of like the pressure in one sense so that people are putting on them. But this model of, of encouragement and ministry oftentimes focuses on speaking the truth. Now they'll quote oftentimes that Ephesians passage, speaking the truth in love, but if you really dig into that, we misuse that verse really quite often because it's a different twist there, and I'm not going to get into it this morning. But, but I understand it's like this, that, that I'm going to encourage you by speaking the truth to you, and I'm going to point out the sin that's in your life. And some people conform to that, and other people t- walk out the door of a church and go, I felt judged. I felt judged. See, if the only message is trying harder and the emphasis is on conforming to truth, for many people, it just doesn't last long. And why? I go back and go, the heart hasn't changed. Behavior can change for a while, but if the heart doesn't change, it really becomes cold truth. It comes really devoid of any kind of affectionate love. But let me give you another pathway, in one sense, maybe swinging all the way over to another side. Number two, I said it this way. Some put the emphasis on unconditional love and acceptance. And with this model, people look, for example, at Hebrews 10, and then kind of interpret it like this. Make sure we don't offend anybody. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. So this method, in one sense, puts a great deal of emphasis on the environment, the kind of the the feeling of a church. We want to create a place where no one's ever feels bad. And here's the tension with this belief. There's actually a theological and a biblical problem with with this issue. Because we can drift away actually from believing that this book has any authority 
for faith and for practice. It becomes minimized, and oftentimes you understand liberal denominations have actually moved down this path. But when this happens, when it's only about grace and only about this, this total acceptance of everything, there's a, they're adopting, you can adopt a very subtle humanistic philosophy that basically is doing this at a very deep level. We're affirming the goodness of men and women. All people are really good. And all that you need to believe is if you, if you have enough time and the right environment for people, that change will be better. Spiritual change will happen. They're going to see their own sin eventually. And the reality, though, this is where it misses, I think, the theological reality, is the fall of mankind into sin. See, left alone... People have no natural tendency to conform to the character of God. And matter of fact, moving toward unrighteousness is, is as natural as a mosquito that wants to bite us and draw our blood. See, in this environment, and I think we see a culture in our world right now that it's adopted this idea of man is inherently good, and if you just keep enough time, you know, they didn't know better 30, 40 years ago on this stuff. Now we've adopted and we've gotten better, so now, therefore, we know what's right and true. And you go, no, that's missing. God says he gets the right to decide what's true and right as well. So in this context, ministry is about accepting warmth and grace by itself, really, only. But let me give you a third path. This is where I kind of come, I come down. And it's a combination, but there's a little bit more maybe than what you thought of in the past. Number three, ministry that leads to oneness and a deeper union with Christ requires truth and grace. But there's a third piece, because people come back, yeah, truth and grace, in balance, that's what we need to do. And I go, there's a missing piece here. And a proper Motivation. A proper motivation is where I think we end up failing at times. So understand that truth is needed. And I was reading in Amos, the book of Amos this week. I kind of haven't been there in a while. And here is a prophet. You got to go back there and just read it this afternoon if you want to be challenged pretty deeply. But he would have scorned the idea that the only thing a church needs is a loving environment to blossom everybody's spirituality toward love and good deeds. And he just, he ripped them. He ripped the people of Israel. See, the Bible is full of strong exhortation about sin. Truth is actually so deeply vital. But truth rarely works without grace, and we understand that. But I look back and go, what's the illest, maybe the best illustration all of scripture for me at least it's jesus and in particular you think of john chapter 4 with the woman at the well where jesus first he wasn't supposed to be talking to a woman there and i'm not going to go there here look at the text deeply but it's just a couple of reminders he confronted this woman on her sin but he was quick to give grace and forgive and he challenged her on this relationship merry-go-round that she was on. 
He went after her and told her to get off it. See, too often we argue that, yes, grace and truth are needed. But again, there's this missing piece for me. And it's critical in this idea of becoming one. There's this deep connection of becoming one here. And it's subtle, but let me just kind of, here's how I need to explain it. Over the years, an observation that I've had, this is over lots of years of ministry and being in a church, I find that some people are highly committed to the truth model. we got to preach the Word of God, and we do. And I know some that when they talk about Again, encouragement, like I said, easier. They want to kind of slam the truth at people. And that kind of becomes their goal. And then the other side is people are motivated with creating an environment of a church that's, that we don't want to offend anybody. We're going to, we're going to be accepting of people. We're not going to ruffle any feathers and it's grace, grace, grace. And I want to go for both of them, but, but, but. See, some people fall on the grace side, some on the truth side, but what I've discovered in looking back and thinking through years of ministry is that some people have both focuses, but they do little to actually deepen and grow in their relationships with people. With people. People aren't motivated to love people. They're motivated by truth and they're motivated by grace, but the person standing in front of them, they're not motivated by the person in front of them. And and understand this, bringing it back to John 17, the goal of oneness is about people. It's people. One cannot have oneness without being in a relationship with people. But what we do is we try to minister in grace and in truth and not be involved with people. Look again at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good deeds. See, these word, that word one another, words one another. Now, l- let me give you the meaning of that word. Now, you might have each other in there. I think one another is a little more uh, in the original here. But look at the definition of one another. Used to indicate a reciprocal relationship or reciprocal actions among the members, the people of a set. We really can't stir up one another unless we are in relationships where we actually begin to know one another. The word stir up, understand, is very intentional words. Think of a recipe, stir it 99 times and an arm goes around and around. It's an action. Stir up, do something, mix it up, do something. Do you feel the action of that term? Stir up one another, meaning stirring up between a two or three people, or there might be more, but it's the stirring up something between people. 
See, a church can be, can be committed to grace and truth and not commit to people. And no oneness is a result of that. And frankly, I would argue little discipleship really takes place. So practically, we got to go farther. See, what does it mean to be motivated to stir up each other's lives toward love and action and to encourage as we look and wait for Jesus to come? So let me give you some sub-points to this issue here. And just reminders about stirring up. Letter A there. We need to be willing to engage people with the purpose of their movement toward Christ and the body of Christ. This is a willingness to get involved in other people's lives and deeper than we think. But if the church isn't willing, oneness comes to a screeching halt, that which Jesus prayed for. I'll throw you up kind of my favorite verse that I've used for years in ministry, Colossians 1, 28 and 29. It says this, He is the one we proclaim, admonish and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we, each of us, may present everyone, others that we know, much fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the inner Christ so powerfully works in me. See, are we willing to engage people? On God's terms. See, this verse isn't just for pastors and leaders and Sunday school teachers in a church. It's for everyone. For teenagers, for children. I remember using this, Dan and I used this passage back with our son Andy in sixth grade where his friend Billy and we're challenging him, Andy, you've got to present Billy complete in Christ. You've got to love him, care for him. What does it mean, Andy, for you as a sixth grader to help him move toward Christ? See, the more we're willing to walk alongside of others, toward Jesus, toward Christ, folks, that prayer that Jesus prayed for in John 17 begins to take root and grow within a body of Christ. Let me give you another one, letter B. We must be willing to learn to speak words that make a spiritual difference in people's lives. If conversations don't take place within the body, oneness will never occur. Truth must be communicated through words. Grace and forgiveness must be presented through words and actions. But at the heart of encouragement is words that communicate love, thoughts, ideas. Let me show you how important words are. I have a number of verses here that I want to put on the screen. Look at the first one, Proverbs 18.21. The tongue has the power of life and death. What is that saying? The words that flow out of our mouths matter. It makes a difference in other people's lives. Proverbs 12.25. Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. See, words make a difference when someone's deeply discouraged or suffering with depression. I understand that we have the power. God gives us, can give us words that make a difference. And as we give words of kindness, it encourages people. Look at Proverbs 12.25. Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. 
You can move from anxiety to, oh, life is okay. You catch the power of words. Another one, Proverbs 15.4. The soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. Words of gentleness, soothing, words that soothe, and other words that can crush the soul. See, words matter in ministry. And we need to learn at times the proper use of words as we speak to one another. Look at Proverbs 16.24. Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. See, words can go deep into the soul as they're communicated with the right motives and the right heart. It impacts people, our choice of words. See, too often people don't think about the words that, that they communicate with. See, and, and this is where I, I need to circle back even to this a couple weeks ago from fear. See, but what if? See, here's the kind of the, the tension I think we have. What if I knock on somebody's the, their life and, and ask how things are going, you know, maybe out in the foyer afterward, and, and they actually say this, terrible. A, and I am hurting or I'm empty, or I'm struggling with depression, or I'm having an emotional affair, or I'm struggling with pornography. What happens if that flows out of somebody's mouth toward you when you begin to knock on their lives? See, what words, and here's where the fear comes in. What are the words we should use? What should we say? We don't know what to say at times. What if I start using death words here and, and destroy them when they open up to me? Uh, let me just give you a, a little bit of a hint here. First, probably calling them stupid and an idiot is not life words, okay? Just we can we can assume that. But if somebody if you don't have the answer all the time, this is literally what you could say. You know what? I don't know how to respond to it this time. But would it, be okay, would it be okay if we came back and met again over a cup of coffee? And I'm going to pray about how I, I could help and respond to you. I'm just not sure right now. Do you realize that that is probably a better response than just jumping in and giving words at that point? To wait to give words is actually sometimes better. See, oftentimes, coming back again builds a relationship. It takes it another step farther. You're able to go deeper when you actually don't know that answer right up front. But here's the deal. If we never knock on people's lives, if we never experience going after people like that, we'll never learn. We'll never get to that place where we know what words do we need to learn to be effective for the kingdom of God. We've we got to learn. We, we can't assume that we know all of those answers. We, didn't, we don't prepare ourselves at times. You know, I, I, I think of parenting even. How, how many of us jumped into parenting and we assumed that we knew what we were doing and then after the fact we go, oh, got to do some studying, figuring out what to do. Their kids are struggling, whatever. 
You know, rarely do parents read parenting books two or three years before they have kids. That's just not normal. But at times we need to dig in and figure out what to say. And there's lots of resources to help us learn those things. But if we never do it, if we never experience it, we never learn, how do you become one at the level that Jesus is talking about here? Let me give you one more. And these aren't comprehensive. I could have spent much more time, but let her see. Intentional ministry isn't about technique. It's an attitude and a view of others that people are valuable in God's eyes. See, motivation starts with God giving us a vision to minister to people. To begin to see as Jesus sees. I don't think there's any better text than Matthew chapter 9. I want to put it on the screen there for you. Look at what it says. Jesus went through all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. See, when we look at people that gather together, even in a church every Sunday, what do we see when we look out at a crowd of people? Do we see harassed or helpless or struggling or discouraged? Do we take the time to look in each other's eyes and watch And listen, sometimes even without using words. But see, the challenge, are we willing to take down the walls and maybe admit even for us that we need people in our lives? We do. You know, I stand up here in the last couple of years, probably 45 times during the year, out of the 52 Sundays, but there's even a reality for me. You know what? Do you really know who I am? And, but, but let me give you an illustration. You know, whether I like it or not, Deanna knows me really well. She sees how I handle things, my reactions, coming after a Sunday, events, She knows my frustration. She knows my weaknesses. She knows my flaws. And you know what? She loves and accepts me. But that is what oneness is supposed to look like. If you don't have that in a marriage, a marriage is going to struggle. If if, If there's that kind of acceptance. But the oneness that Jesus prayed for assumes the willingness for the walls to come down in a church and to become ministers to each other just like a marriage where we actually know each other deeper than just how's the weather today. So we need to open our lives to someone. We need to give our lives to someone. Because the journey of discipleship was never meant to be alone. 
We were never meant to walk this path of discipleship and even toward Christ with just me and Jesus or me and my wife. There's supposed to be more people in our lives. And when that happens, John 17 prayer gets answered. In the front of your bulletins, it says, Together in Christ, making him known. What we've been talking about these last seven weeks is the together in Christ. See, Jesus sees us. He sees our fears. He sees our discouragement. He, he knows us intimately. But he wants that to be penetrating that kind of a relationship within a church where we're giving ourselves to each other to minister to the people that sometimes, sometimes God is just placing in our lives. And I suspect, matter of fact, when Jesus looked over these crowds, when he, when he quoted that, this group of people, and he said, here's sheep that are harassed, he jumped in and he ministered. And what I suspect is that many of those people were the Acts 2 church people who later on became a part of that church in Acts chapter 2. That's what I'm convinced of. I can't support that biblically, I know that. But there's where we need to stop and we need to say, God, would you motivate us? Would you reveal your love to us in a way that we would reach out to people, that we would open our lives to people and be willing to walk alongside of a few within the body of believers for their benefit and to become one? So pray, your assignment this week, pray for opportunities. And watch for opportunities. Look into people's lives and hearts and go, God, how do you want to use me? Let's stand and pray.